I think inevitably, when you're faced with scarcity, you need to be open-minded and creative. And I think that's a really important facet of being a leader. It is being the one who can say, okay, well, we're not going to achieve this way. How could we do it? Welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of Lois Howell. Um, welcome to you, Lois. Thank you. Love to be here. Yes, good to see you. Uh, you are the CEO of St. Wilfrid's Hospice. Uh, St. Wilfrid's Hospital provides and promotes high quality specialist palliative care through inpatient and community services. And you have a 14 bed inpatient unit. You have day services, uh, community hospice team, amongst other staff, all of which provide emotional and spiritual support to patients and their families through terminal illness and end of life care. And today we're going to be exploring strategic leadership also in the context of leading in a time of scarcity. Uh, but before we get into that, Lois, I'd like to ask you, uh, what do you love about what you do? I love the fact that I work in a really relatively small organisation, so I can be close to the people I work with, close to the people who provide care, close to the people who experience our care. And I love working in an organisation whose values uh, I ascribe to completely myself, but in whom I have confidence that I matter. Um, I think I matter to this organisation, and this organisation matters hugely to me. I can walk the corridors and know almost everybody's name. I know huge numbers of our many, many, many volunteers. Um, and I love working in an organisation that is loved by its community, by its users. It sounds like a great place to work there, Lois. It is. It is. I've been here eight months now, and they have been eight of the most fulfilled months of my life. It's it's really, really impressive. That's fantastic. That's brilliant. And we're talking uh, strategic leadership uh, today, and it'd be just good to get from your understanding, your experience, uh, and how you sort of perceive uh, strategic leadership, really, because I think it's, it's banded about, but it'd just be good to helpfully to give context to our conversation today. Mm. I think as a strategic leader, it's your responsibility to make sure that you have your nose up from the grindstone of the operational and you are looking out to the horizons. You are looking at opportunities and threats. You're looking at where the organisation wants to go, but what the likely um, pitfalls, obstacles are along the way, which are the um, handrails you need to grab as you walk past organisationally. Uh, it's your responsibility to make sure that the organisation's values um, guide the organisation on its journey towards delivery of its objectives. Um, and as I say, it, it's your responsibility to make sure you don't get pulled down too much into the operational. I think having um, contact with operational colleagues, understanding what's going on operationally is really important. But making sure that you're not distracted by it is is absolutely essential for a strategic leader. And that, that is a challenge, isn't it? Because, mm -hmm. you know, day-to-day -day stuff needs to happen. And we know the you know, operational piece is really important. How do you maintain that, almost that short-term daily activity focus, but also maintaining, as I say, almost lifting your gaze to more strategic, bigger things. How do you sort of balance that yourself in a day-to-day? -day? I mean, have you got any examples of how that might sort of pan out and work out for you? Mm. 
I'm I'm lucky. I work um, in our hospice building in our main site. So we have, as you mentioned, our 14 inpatient beds there, but our community team is also based in the hospice itself. We look after a caseload of normally around 350 people are having physical and the emotional and spiritual care that you mentioned from us. And I walk the building at least three times a week and I go out to our shops, but I diarise that time and I make sure that there's a start and an end to it and that I make sure that I've got time in my diary to go back and do the rest of it, do my day job, because my day job is about creating the context and the environment in which everyone else can do their day job successfully and effectively. And that's that's you sort of keeping close to the operation, isn't it? And making sure mm-hmm. you're observing, aware, but also having a sense of presence, isn't it, in that in that context? Absolutely. It's it's a small organization. And I think people like to know like to know who I am, like to know that I care, like to know that I understand what they're talking about. I spent a lot of my first four months in post um, working alongside operational colleagues. So I'll, I'll freely admit that my first four months weren't particularly strategic, but that was a, a conscious decision on my part to inform my later practice as a strategic leader. And I spent time with our clinical teams on the inpatient unit. I went out to visit patients with our clinical nurse specialists. I went out with our physiotherapists. I've been to all of our 12 shops. I worked with our housekeeping team. I have scrubbed every lavatory in this building, spent a shift in with the kitchen team, um, spent time talking to people in the support service as well, in HR, in finance, in IT. Um, Because if you don't do that kind of thing in a small organization, people can see you, look you in the eye and not have confidence in you. Mm-hmm. And I think if they're that close to you, people will come, you know, we we have a, a communal um, lunchroom. People will, you know, see me in the lunchroom and if they, you know, they, they have the opportunity to talk to me, of course they do. If they don't think I know what I'm talking about or that I don't care or that I don't um, have insight into the challenges that they face on a daily basis they're not going to have confidence that I make the right decisions in the long run and strategically and I think that's really important but there's a time and a place where that needs to 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 move to one side you resurrect periodically I don't want to be the kind of leader that people say oh we saw her once at the beginning and then we've never seen her again I want to do it you know every maybe every nine months or so I'll have another round of working uh, with everybody again um but then people including me, need to understand that it's my job to actually go and pin myself to my desk or go out to meetings, talk to other people, but to be working in that strategic level. Yeah, and it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Balancing the, you know, you have to, as you say, keep the organisation in a strategic sort of mindset. You have to create those conversations with, you know, local, whether it's community leaders, uh, organisations, um donors investments a whole host of stuff going on there uh, but also keeping in touch with what the organization is doing on a day-to-day basis and i like the fact that you've created or you're creating this place where people can approach you and i think as a leader it's really important to have that openness and approachability where people can ac- access you but also you've you're role modeling as well you're role modeling how, how to lead in a, in a very positive way and embracing uh, what people the challenges people are facing because you've you, you've done it you know in, in a you know your examples of, of trying it as well haven't you 
Mm. I, I think it's really important to be approachable because if things start going wrong, I need to know about it straight away. And people need to have confidence that when they come and talk to me, they'll be able to get a calm and measured response, but that I will listen and I will care. And also that I'll know what they're talking about. So it's much, much better, I think, that that I am approachable in that way and will genuinely have insight into what people are concerned about rather than be remote and the kind of person it's difficult to tell bad news to. Mm. And we're, we're talking about, you know, leading in a time of, of scarcity and, and you know, we're, I think a lot of people listen to this right now who are leaders of organisations, uh, whether that's business or charity, you are a, a charity, uh, maybe face with some challenges and certainly over the last 12, 18 months, you know, in terms of cost of living crisis and, and other sort of challenges of, of business and e- economic sort of impact. Um, and, you know, scarcity can be in many ways, can't it? It can be, it can be resource of people because that can be a scarcity in terms of trying to recruit, retain uh, a staff as well can be a quite a challenge, but also finances uh, comes with that as well. So what are your thoughts on, on sort of leading in terms of scarcity and how have you, I don't know if you've got any examples where you've you've had some difficulties or challenges, whether currently or previous uh, roles, uh, and how have you navigated those? Mm-hmm. I think inevitably, when you're faced with scarcity, you need to be open-minded and creative. Um, and I think that's a really important facet of being a leader. It is being the one who can say, okay, well, we're not going to achieve this way. How could we do it? And okay, we might not be able to achieve the target that we intended to, but how close to it could we get? Or could we get to there? Would that be good enough? And it's encouraging people to think flexibly in times of scarcity are really important, um, rather than panicking about um, deviating from uh, a, a preconception about what's acceptable, what's normal, what's our, what's our what's our position as an organisation. And the answer needs to be, well, in reality, our position can't be there anymore. But let's think about where we are going to be. Let's not spend our time throwing our hands up and despairing. Let's think about what we can do differently instead. We are um, having some some interesting um, consequences of scarcity in the community. So it costs us around £9 million a year to run our organisation. We get a very tiny, less than 18% of that comes from the state. The rest is raised from individuals, from uh, other foundations and organisations which make grants, from corporate organisations who support us. And we're we're very grateful to everybody. But a significant proportion, about 25% down that of our income, comes from our charity shops. We've got 12 charity shops and a really thriving e-commerce business and in this time of financial scarcity actually our charity shops are doing really well and we are helping to support people who find themselves needing to shop charity shops more Um, we're also contributing to the sustainability agenda because we are providing a market for um, reuse and pre-loved clothes and other goods so we are benefiting from scarcity in one way. We're aware that there's probably a window while that works well. Um, I think other charity retail organisations have noted that there's a, a reduction in the quality and quantity 
of donated goods that they can then sell and therefore their income, although the volume, the number of sales goes up, the, the value of each sale starts to drop. We're, we're very, very lucky with the, the donors locally who want to support us for that. So there is scope then to look creatively at that um, scarcity. Yes, it's it's causing a problem, but how are we helping other people to uh, meet and manage the impact of that scarcity while, while you know, benefiting ourselves? We've got to face... Um, the challenges particularly of legacies in time of financial scarcity, people who have families may well be deciding, actually, do you know what? I, I don't think I can afford to leave a gift in my will. My children, my my family are going to need every penny I can give them. And with um, house prices dropping as well, the, the, the benefit of legacies, whether they do leave them just to the family or leave them to us, is reducing. So again, we need to look creatively at how we talk to people about leaving us a gift in their will and how we um, encourage them to understand that it is important regardless of the value really we, we are going to benefit from it no matter what and we're very very grateful so um, as I say creativity is a really important part of managing in scarcity and how, other... how, do you, how do you do that in terms of so you talk about you talk a lot about the creativity and mm. I think it's really important to think differently. Mm. How do you take your board, your team, uh, your organisation through a process of thinking differently? And, and, and an example of the legacy piece, you know, where mm. there could be a, an impact there. How do we? Although you know your shops are doing well, but that might just be as you say for a season. Um, how do you sort of start to plan that through and work different ideas with the team? How does that how does that work really with you as an organisation? I think, as in most business, it involves knowing your data really well. We need to look at um, which of our shops are doing well. Why are they doing well? We we have a really interesting range of retail property profiles. Um, we have some very conventional um, high street charity shops in some areas. We've got very high-end um, charity shop in East Street in Chichester. We've also got a specialist shop, retro and vintage at the other end. We've got a shop in Bognor that's actually in a garden centre. Um, so it is looking at where our has um, existing difference and diversity in our approach to retail stood us uh stood us proud done us good and and how can we build on the the um the bravery i suppose that we we showed in 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 taking a different model and doing something different how can we build on that so know your data um highlight the areas where taking that first step towards innovation and doing things different has worked well and build on it ask around um, ask other people what they think, how they've managed. Ask your own teams. They'll often know. The people who are working operationally and closest to the um, organisations or, the, or the, the business streams that you've got, they've probably got some really good ideas. So make sure you ask internally. Um, I think there is a certain amount of um, personal, um, this is going to sound really arrogant, personal charisma, personal um ability to take people with you uh, that's important in a leader, but you've got to ensure that you are giving good assurance, not reassurance. You've got to be able to back up what you say with data. You've got to be willing as a leader to be held to account. 
you've got to be willing as a leader to justify why you think that this proposal is the right idea. Um, so that that um, blend, a balance of um, not um, bravado, but um, confidence and willingness to take a risk with um, understanding that it's your role as a leader, particularly if you have a board, if you have trustees or non-executive directors, to, to justify your position and explain why you think it's worth investing the money or the reputation in doing something. And, and what comes with innovation and creativity is that uncertainty still, doesn't it? So you've, you've, you've got the uncertainty of, or scarcity of whether it's resources or, or staff or whatever it may be, and then you're creating these new ideas and that creates that sort of uncertainty and not so sure. How do you sort of keep your teams sort of engaged in that in that sort of journey, but also uh, motivated uh, to mm. sort of follow you and to do what you think is, on, based on your opinion, based on what you've gathered in terms of the data, a good idea to sort of move forward with, even though there's, there is uncertainty because you're trying something new? Yeah. Um, I think it's really important to ask people's opinion, ask how they're feeling, acknowledge uncertainty and the discomfort that might come with that. Um, again, arrogantly, um, I would like to think I've got quite high levels of emotional intelligence and I am keen to know what it is about what I'm proposing that might unsettle people, that might make them feel uncomfortable. How can I get to the nub of that particular point and talk to them about it to show A, that I care, B, that I understand and C, I'm willing to try to do what I can to address that without compromising the overall outcome of what we're doing. And I think showing that you understand and are managing that that balance that there always is businesses like so much and it's a it's a question of managing competing demands competing priorities um competing instincts and showing that you are managing that tightrope between holding your nerve with a new project and refusing to accept the inevitable and as a leader, you've got to recognise when you are starting to teeter on the brink of moving into refusing to accept the inevitable rather than being confident and holding your nerve. And I think that engaging people and help you make that judgment is really important, particularly in a very small team. And can you, you might give an example where you've, you've um, I suppose, got a strategic plan uh, you set out all this with, with the board, with the organisation, or the situation, and it's not gone to plan. It's not gone mm -hmm. as, as expected uh, for whatever reason. External forces, things you weren't aware of, um, and, and almost how did you mm. deal with that? Not failure, as such you, you, know, you called it. it. Didn't go quite to plan, but failure might be another word. Uh, and and what lessons did you learn from that as well? Um. I can talk about our, our work at the moment towards developing our new strategy for 24 to 29. Um, the, the health sector generally, as a result of demographic changes in this country, is very concerned at the moment with meeting the needs of the frail part of our population. Those are people who are often as a result of older age, but um, experiencing weakness, inability to cope with their life, um, reduced resilience to um, small illnesses, to setbacks, um, inability to, to manage and cope with their life generally. Um, and 
you know, there is a huge demand for services for frail people in this country. And a lot of people who die, obviously at St. Wilfrid's, we look after people who, who are dying, but we look after people who have a complex need for palliative or end-of-life care. We're not in a position to look after everybody who is dying. So we are proposing to engage with um, the, the health and social care sector generally in how we meet the needs of the community. And that will include meeting the needs of an increasing number of people who are frail. But we are in a really difficult position within our own organisation with understanding our role in that, given that we cannot meet everybody's needs. So we had put some things in our draft strategy about expanding our services for frail people. And some of our board members pointed out very fairly that actually if we express it like that, we're, we're never going to win. We will be um, put in a position where our limited and shrinking resources are compromised even further and we will be at grave risk of um, diluting our service in a way that means it's it's not what we set out to do as an organisation. So we've had to think carefully about how we articulate our ambition, how we assess and um, put appropriate safeguards around our ambition to play a full part in meeting the healthcare needs, palliative and end-of-life healthcare needs of our local population without becoming overwhelmed and compromising what we needed to do to fulfil our charitable and organisational objectives. And I think that was a useful reminder that um, our our underlying ambition just to help everybody and be great and to really look after anybody who's dying and support them, it, it isn't manageable. We have got to be clear about what we do. We need to make sure that we are um, reflecting the circumstances of the patients who come to us. A very significant number of our patients um, have cancer. We are now moving into looking at uh, broadening our range of other conditions. We've got some new clinical nurse specialists who specialise in other conditions, one a respiratory nurse, one a liver specialist. But we also need to acknowledge that because of the changes in the demographics, a lot of the patients who come to us because of their underlying cancer condition will also be frail because they will have many other conditions because they may be older people. Similarly, we're looking to um, build a, a, a strengthened partnership with providers of dementia services because an increasing number of the patients who come to us because of their complex palliative and end-of-life care needs also happen to have dementia. And so our need to broaden our um, range of expertise isn't necessarily about meeting the needs of more patients. It's about meeting the needs of the patients we've got better and more effectively. And understanding that um, we need to, I needed to help our board in, and not just our trustees, our, our, our staff as well, move from the, we just wrap our arms around everybody to actually know we, we do need to understand that we have limited resources, our resources are reducing, um, our ability to um, attract state funding is reducing, our um, ability to raise funds from the public is reducing because of the cost of living crisis. And we need to change our mindset. And that's that's a, a way in which our initial expectation of where we were going and what we were doing, which was expanding and helping more people, has to be refined into 
no, we probably need to help the same number of people, but help them better, more effectively. Uh, look at maybe how we can signpost people to other services, but acknowledge the reality of the, the limits of our abilities. And that's a real challenge, isn't it? Because you've got in mm-hmm. yourself uh, you know, people who really want to help people and care for people, and you've mm-hmm. got a, a, you know, a facility that can do that really, really well. Um, and you probably do want to help more and more people and broaden that out. But actually, you say you've got to be laser focused because you'll end up diluting what you do and diluting the impact on those those individuals. Um, that's a real challenge, isn't it? And particularly with the nature of the people who work for you and why they work for you is because they want to help people and care for people. And they go, we can help you, we can help you. And it's that's a hard, isn't it? It's hard to, to restrict something which is really, really good. It, it's really hard. And we also need to think about the consequences of restricting our services on our ability, our ability to, to raise funds because people might think, well, I'm going to give you money or raise money or jump off the Spinnaker Tower or whatever because you gave my dad a really fantastic service in this particular format. And if we have to say, oh, we're really sorry, we, we, we can't do that anymore, we're not going to be able to run that service anymore because we have no money, then people's motivation to raise money for us may well be reduced and think, well, I'll, I'll give it to perhaps cancer research instead. Mm. We also have a huge number of volunteers. We have more than 500 volunteers uh, which support who support our staff of around 250. So we have far more volunteers than we do um, paid employees. Again, we need to acknowledge that many of our volunteers are motivated by a passion to do as much as possible for as many people as possible. And they also may choose to volunteer in particular services in particular ways. And if we need to cut back and restrict that, there's a chance that our volunteer may say, well, I don't think my services are valued or, well, but that's what that's the one thing that was really motivating me or that's the whole reason for me choosing to volunteer with you. I will take my time somewhere else. And so it's not just a matter of leading the organisation. You've got to think about leading the trustees with you. You've got to think about leading the public, your funders with you, leading your paid workforce with you, but also your volunteer workforce with you. And, and it, it's it's a different, potentially a different message or similar message, but expressed in different ways for each of those different audiences. And it's keeping that strategic focus because every decision or action done today will have an impact obviously tomorrow. And you, you, you've got to make sure that, you know, that is going towards your overall charitable objectives and purpose and what you're there for, but maintaining that almost that laser focus that, that keeps you sustainable, have the great impacts that you have. And, and it's, it's trying to convey that, communicate that. And you talked about, you know, this whole piece of creativity and innovation of, 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 of a, you know, mod, um, adapting during times of scarcity. Um, and obviously failure comes with that as well. And we touched on that a little bit. Mm. How do you create a culture? I say a culture of failure. It sounds really quite negative, but a, a, a culture of people taking risks, trying new things and supporting that. Because, you know, when you do try something new, there's a chance it might not go as, as expected, basically. And that's, that's a reality. Mm. How, do, how have you created that sort of, sort of culture for that? I, I think it's about, um, and, I, and I think I'd like to think I've done this not just here, but in other organisations. It's about um, celebrating um, 
people who are trying something different. Um, particularly celebrating where you've tried something, you've assessed it, realized it's not going to work, drawn it to a close and moved on. And I think celebrating those things are just as is just as important as celebrating the ones that turn out to be a wild success. And we have um put something in our new strategy about um, fostering a culture of entrepreneurship, I think, particularly with our fundraising. We want to create um, dedicated funds. That, well, that's a very technical ch um, charity term. We want to make sure we have funds available, a pool of funds, so that we can fund small projects, pop-up shops, um, uh, opportunities to go to festivals with some a particularly curated collection of items for sale. Um, but we, you know, we, we provide a really good clinical service here as well, but we are not afraid to take risks with meeting people's wider holistic needs. Um, I had somebody come the other day saying, uh, I just need to let you know, we've had a pony in one of the patient's rooms. Um, it wasn't very muddy. It was fine. It's fine. Um, and I know in many other organizations, the, the, the risk assessments, the, the approval procedures would have just stopped that happening before we could make that happen for that patient. But here we have a culture that says this this would be an amazing outcome for this patient. Let's give it a go. Let's 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 try it. You know, we'll some I'm sure that I'm sure they'll be fine. I'm sure somebody'll be fine with it. So we we already have quite a good culture of risk taking to make amazing things happen for people. And we just need to make sure that we foster that in the rest of the organization about in, in the context of doing amazing things to help our organization thrive not just individuals sounds like a fantastic story a pony in seeing the patients that sounds great I, I think i've seen videos on horses going into hospitals and there's some real sort of impact with that isn't there yeah tony the pony he was great very well behaved tony the pony fantastic that's brilliant what a great instagram photograph that would have been Absolutely. <laughs> Um, it's been great talking to you, Lois, and I really liked your insights and your openness of sharing your journey with your organization and how you're leading strategically, but also with the challenges of scarcity as well and how you're sort of navigating that. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or your organization and connect with you, how's the best way of doing that? We have our website, uh, St. Wilfrid's. Um... I would say there is also a St. Wilfrid's in Eastbourne, the other end of Sussex. So do make sure you get the Chichester uh, St. Wilfrid's. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, St. Wilfrid's uh, Chichester has a, an Instagram account as well as a Twitter account. So you can find us through all the usual social media channels. But as I say, just, just make sure it's Chichester one, not, not Eastbourne. They're lovely people too. But if you're looking for local, then we're the ones that count. Brilliant. Well, thank you for, for your time today, Lois. Thank you. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you like this episode, then please rate, review and share it with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, I coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions. And it will help you go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation. You can contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com.